Good morning. Our scripture is Acts 2, 37 to 47. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am also one of the pastors here on the team with Heather and with Lydia and the rest of our staff. If you're new, as Heather said, it's so good to have you. What a joy. Have you been here before? Whatever. <laughs> I've made that joke so many times, I can't believe you keep laughing at it. Um, we are currently in a series entitled Spark. And the purpose of this series is to look at spiritual practices that might spark in us greater love, greater affection. And hopefully these are practices that are powerful and helpful kind of no matter where we are on our spiritual journey. Maybe you feel like the fire of your faith has totally died or never existed in the first place. Hopefully these practices could be powerful ways of reigniting that fire of enthusiasm or hope or love or affection. But at the same time, these practices, as we see them continually showing up throughout the story of the Bible, hopefully they are also practices that help you grow and mature and continue to develop. So kind of wherever you are in your journey, wherever you are in the process of healing, wherever you are in the process of knowing Jesus, wherever you are in the process of growth, these practices are intended to spark, fuel, encourage, fan the flame of our affections and our love. So far, some of the practices that we have looked at, we began this series in the first week of January. And beginning in January, we looked at the practice of rest because we wanted to start the year in a restful way. The year is such an easy time for us to like start talking about resolutions, to start talking about goals. That's all really good, really beautiful things to do, but it can also immediately send us in a cycle of busyness and anxiety. And so we wanted to say, we're going to start the year in a place of rest, a place of trust. We're actually going to risk and move against our kind of like impulses to say, no, no, we're going to trust Jesus first and let out of that well of trust move the rest of our practices. Then we moved from rest into play, practice of play, a practice that we've never talked about here in this community. But I think if we would be willing to engage in the practice of play and fun and celebration, we might see a lot more love begin to get birth in our life. 
From play, we looked at prayer as a creation space of presence and prayer. We looked at the practice of lament and naming evil, naming injustice as also a part of growing our own capacity to love. Because if you don't name things, well, then you silence something. I remember actually before I went on sabbatical, Heather told me this, that if you stay silent about evil, you stay silent about pain, you stay silent about harm that you've experienced, even harm in your own life, you actually start to become kind of complicit. So you have to name it to free yourself, to to open yourself up. So lament is a practice that actually produces joy and love, not keep you in bondage, but actually frees you from so much. And from lament, we talked about story and telling your Jesus story, declaring the good news. We talked about stability in an interview with Michael O'Brien that was really cool. And we talked about the practice of justice. If you missed any of that and you want to dive into it more, there's a couple of different resources that we've made available because we think this conversation is important long term. There's a journal at the end of the communion table. You might have already grabbed one and lost it. Totally okay. You can grab another one. It has notes and spots for this conversation. And then as Heather mentioned, there's also a podcast. It's like engaging all of these conversations in different ways from different perspectives and different point of views. And all of it meant to be an additional resource to you in this series. Now, with all that said, we've got two more weeks remaining. So we've got today as a talking about the practices that spark in us joy, and then we have next week. And next week, we're going to talk about vocation and generosity. Should be good. But today, before we get there, before we close this out, we're going to talk about the practice of community. The practice of community. In some ways, it's hard to know when you start talking about community, when you're talking about spiritual practices. We could have begun with it in many ways because community sets the context in which so much spiritual development and health and growth happens. Or do you end it in community because it becomes the expression place of so many of the practices? Well, instead of either of those, we just put it right here because I felt lost and confused. I think intuitively, we all know that we need and should practice community. I think there's like an intuitive sense of value in the practice of community. I was doing some research this week to understand community, and social science is pretty clear that if you want to live a satisfied life, like long-term satisfaction, if you're looking at features and metrics of long-term satisfaction, the clearest sign that will lead to long-term satisfaction is the cultivation of healthy relationships. The Atlantic is doing this really marvelous piece on like um, how to be happy. And they wrote an article this week on seven practices of happiness. And they were like, you can actually avoid all six of them and just do the seventh, which was long-term relationships, and you will be more satisfied than if you had done all the six and not the seventh. And I think we all kind of intuitively know that, that, that relationships, that long-term relationships, that healthy relationships, that healthy community is important for satisfaction. Last week, we talked about stability, like the practice of stability. And my midweek group, our community group, met to talk about, like, how do you curate and cultivate stability in your life? And the answer was unanimously healthy relationships. But again, I think we know that. I think there's something kind of, like, intuitive in us. It's like, yeah, yeah, healthy relationships are important for the practice of stability. So with that said, why is it so hard, then, to practice community? 
We know that it is important. We know that it is good for us. We know that it is life-giving. And yet, I think if we also reflect on the practice of community and our friendships and our relationships, we know that it is really difficult to do community well. Social science tells us that the key to happiness is relationships, but there was also a 2009 study by a Dutch sociologist who said that our social circles change we lose 50% of our social circle every seven years. Which is wild if you believe relationships are necessary for long-term satisfaction. It's like the world conspires against your ability to pursue long-term relationships. And even if it's not that your relationships have changed over seven years, you just know the difficulty of doing community with people and how easy it is for expectations to go unmet, for relationships to dissolve, and for life together to change. Relationships seems to change at any major event. Someone gets married, and it's like, oh, our relationship with that person, we just kind of intuitively know is going to change. Someone has kids, and you're like, I think our relationship's going to change. Someone takes a job or moves or they identify a new political belief. We saw this, I think, in 2016 to 2020, how fragile relationships could be when ideology changes or shifts. In these last two years, during COVID, we've seen another kind of event and experience that shows the fragility of relationships that we maybe thought were actually very secure and strong. All of a sudden, you're drifting apart because the things that bound you together, the rituals that connected you, the places that connected you start to drift apart. We know relationships are important, and yet it seems very difficult in many cases to hold those relationships for long. And I think we would hope that it would be different in Christian community. We would hope that it would be different in the church, but we also know that it is not that simple. The church is not always the refuge of relationship that we would like it to be. Before the pandemic, statistically, the church was one of the best places to make friends. It was like school and churches were like statistically the best places to make friends. But that's actually really changed in the pandemic because you don't hang out with people as much. We don't spend as much time in the community of church. So that's kind of upended. And if you've been in a community group or a Bible study or a house church or you've had church friends, well, you know that we're not protected from disagreement. We're not protected from schisming over theological or political issues or drama around us, that hits us in the same kind of way. Any community is affected. And so it seems that Christian community is as hard to practice as any other kind of community. And that leads us to the question today, which is how do we practice community? We know we need it. We know that it is essential to our own flourishing and survival. We know what the social science says. I think we know it intuitively that it's important. And if you've spent much time in the church, you probably believe that community is important. You've read that act story about what can happen in the community of people who are founded in Jesus, but it seems so difficult to do. So how do we practice community? That's the question that we're going to wrestle through today, is the practice of community. And as we dive in, I think it would be helpful to start by getting a little analytic about the kind of community that we can experience. And I think if we do this, we might begin to define what kind of communities we experience and what options are available for us. And here's what I mean by that. We experience community in lots of different places. 
If you have a job, you experience community in work. If you have a family, you experience community in your family. If you have friends, you experience community in your family. And so this week, I spent some time trying to graph out relationships on a quadrilateral graph. Uh, You didn't know that you were going to get this at church today, did you? (laughs) If you're like a person who likes math, you're like, what is this? This is as sophisticated as I can get as a soft science major. But here's what I've been thinking about all week, that you can graph most relationships, most expressions of community in this kind of quadrilateral graph. And you'll see the vertical axis represents expectations. Some relationships, all relationships you could say, are defined by a set of expectations. What do we expect of one another? What do we require of one another? What do we think is going to happen in a relationship with one another. And you can see at the top of that expectation line is the kind of community that I would argue tends to have the highest set of expectations around it, family. We tend to put a lot of expectations on our family. That's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing, it's just kind of a neutral thing, that we tend to have high expectations of our family. Sometimes we don't even name those expectations, and that's actually what makes family relationships kinds of tricky, is you don't know that you're stepping into the strange tension of expectations when you're having a conflict with a sibling or with a parent or with a relative. So high expectation kinds of relationships are family. That's one line of this graph. But another part of relationships is this horizontal line that we'll call inclusivity. And inclusivity represents who gets to be our friend, who gets to be a part of community. How does someone become a part of the friendships and the communities that we have? If you've ever thrown an event with a bunch of friends, you know how difficult this line of inclusivity can be to navigate. Who do you invite? If I invite this person, that means I invite all of these people because the word will spread, right? You know the difficulty of navigating the line of inclusivity. And I think if we look at this graph... We can chart out most kinds of relationships. So we talked about family, high expectations, and low inclusivity. It's hard to become a part of family. You can become a part of a family, and you can leave a family, but it's very difficult to become a part of a family, right? You have to be born in, you have to be adopted, married in, or maybe some like, uh, because of time and commitment and consistency, something happens that grafts you into the family, depending upon your experience. On the other side of this graph is uh, what I put as clubs. My wife was like, like discotheca? And I was like, no, no, no. Not that kind of club, babe. (laughs) She's going to love that. Uh, What I meant by clubs is like, think about like your midweek soccer game that happens at like a park in your neighborhood. The game happens every week on Wednesdays. And you show up most of the time to play soccer, right? So there is some expectations. We're going to play soccer on the field on Wednesdays. But the expectations aren't that high. It's not that you're going to be there every single week. It's not that you're going to be really good at soccer. It's just that you're going to go and play soccer, and most people are invited to that game. Anybody who wants to come can come and play soccer. So minimal expectations, pretty high inclusivity. And then in between, we can graft most other kinds of relationships. I put coworkers like kind of in this weird spot here. It's hard to be a coworker with somebody. You have to be hired to the job. So it's not fully inclusive. But most people I know don't have that high of relational expectations of their coworkers. You don't necessarily expect them to be your friends outside of work, though that happens sometimes. Your friends, I put them here just to represent that they can kind of go anywhere. Friends can live on a lot of 
planes of existence within this graph. So now looking at this graph, think for a second, where would you put Christian community? As you look at the line of expectations and the line of inclusivity, where is your just natural impulse? There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's just what are you feeling? Where would you naturally put Christian community? I think it's actually kind of a tricky question just as you think about it because we say that Christian community is family. It's a metaphor that runs throughout the story of the Bible, that we are family, brothers and sisters. In the text that we read today, they refer to one another as brothers and sisters. So we can use that narrative, but we also know that we're not born into the family of Jesus the same kind of way we are to our biological family. We are born again, to use the story of Nicodemus as an example, which is different. It puts different expectations on us, different kinds of relationship. And we're not really a club. That feels like an oversimplification of what we are and what our relationship looks like. We have a shared interest, though. We're here voluntarily. No one's forcing you to show up to church. If they are, blink twice. <laughs> we can help you. Right? No one is expecting you to be here or requiring you to be here as a voluntary organization centered around some kind of shared understanding, shared habit, shared desire, which is very different than family. We can have vastly different understandings, and yet we're still expected to be in relationship. So as you think about it, where do you put it? Maybe even in that notebook, if you have the journal with you, draw this graph and tell me where you put. And as you think about it, let me read you once again, the passage that was read for us this morning from Acts chapter 2. Here's what happens at the birth of Christian community. Spirit has just fallen. Jesus is resurrected. The disciples, the apostles have preached their first real public sermon. This is the birth of Christian community in many ways. And here's what the text says. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the community, to their shared meals and to their prayers. And a sense of awe came over everyone. God had performed many wonders and signs to the apostles, and all the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to anyone who needed them. And every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. So after hearing that, once again, in light of this graph of expectations and inclusivity, where do we place the church? Can we go to the other graph with the X's? We can place it up here. The X represents the church. We can place it up here with family. That's one easy spot. We can place it here with clubs. That's an easy spot. But we've just named some of the tricky things about putting it in either of these places. And I think this text makes it even more difficult. There is high expectations described in this text. They're doing a lot of things together. They're doing things that no modern church would ever ask of its attenders and members to do. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, shared meals and prayers, 
They sell their possessions to give to those who are in need. They meet every day at the temple. Do none of these people have a job? But then, at the same time, all of that language is deeply inclusive. They choose to devote themselves to the apostles' teachings. They choose to sell the pieces of property and possessions and to distribute the proceeds to those who have them in need. They choose to meet together in the temple and eat in their home. They choose to share food with gladness and simplicity. And the Lord added daily to their numbers. It is an evolving, changing, transforming group of humans that have both very high expectations and very high inclusivity. You can go to the next graph. Boom. <laughs> I felt like the climax was less substantial than I intended it to be. <laughs> My argument today is we look at this uh, uh, anticlimactic graph, is that if we're going to map out where Christian community falls and what Christian community looks like and how Christian community is defined in our minds, it is here at the moment of high expectations and high inclusivity, which is a very strange kind of community to exist in. And it is a deeply disruptive kind of community to exist in. And hopefully when you hear this, high expectation, high inclusivity, depending upon your personality, depending upon the things you love, depending upon the way you are wired, something feels a little challenged by that statement. Right? If you're a person who loves very clear lines, this is challenging because it is highly inclusive, always changing, always growing. There's something they are dedicating themselves to independently. So if you are someone who likes clear lines and clear definitions, this is going to be challenging. If you're a person who wants something to be very, very fuzzy, this might also be a little challenging because there is high expectations and high inclusivity. That is the nature of Christian community. Now, how can Christian community look like this? How can it be highly inclusive, full of grace, full of change, full of growth, full of process, and yet still be highly full of expectations in a way that do not crush and do not destroy? How can Christian community exist in both of these places? Well, let me offer you a definition of Christian community and the practice of Christian community that I think will help us begin to get here. Christian community is the practice of moving towards Jesus together. Super simple. But I think this definition creates a space for Christian community to be something that has high expectations and disruptively high inclusivity. Christian community is the practice of moving towards Jesus together. Let me just break that part into parts as we close up. First, Christian community is the practice of moving towards Hear that phrase for a second. It is the practice of moving towards. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 12 uses similar kind of language to describe his own journey with Jesus. And he says this, It is not that I have already reached the goal or have already been perfected, but I pursue the goal 
so that I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me for just this purpose. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I have reached it. But I do this one thing. I forget about the things behind me and I reach out for the things ahead of me. Paul's language here is deeply directional. It's process, movement, journey oriented. Earliest Christians were called followers of the way because we believed we were in a movement together. We were on a journey together. And even the phrase Christians, that's first used in the book of Acts at Antioch to describe Christians as little Jesuses, people who are looking like Jesus, who are in the process of moving in a specific direction. Moving together or journey language or directional language, striving and not perfecting, moving and not reaching the goal, that language is deeply humble. Which is why it's really important for us to talk about today. It is a deeply humble language. Paul is arguably the greatest Christian in the New Testament outside of Jesus. He writes so much of this Bible. He tells us so many of the things that we believe. And yet Paul here is saying, I have not reached a goal. I've not arrived, I've not ascended, I've not perfected something. I am in a journey. I am on a process to get somewhere. It's a radically different way of thinking about what faith is, what this journey is. It is a movement in a specific direction. It's not arriving, it's not perfecting, it's not ascending, it's not static, it's moving. And movement is humble language. It's language that does not know all the details of the journey. It's movement that's not looking backwards or criticizing what's happening behind you, as Paul says. It is language that is focused on what is happening ahead, on their own process of moving forward. And it is language that invites everyone into a journey. Everyone is invited to move and to go. And it's much harder to judge people in motion than it is when you're standing still. I think about this week, um, this is like using movement language. Paul likes to use like fitness language actually all throughout the New Testament to describe faith. In 1 Corinthians 9, he'll say, I run the race. And I was thinking about this, like I, I go to Planet Fitness, uh, the lazy person's gym. <laughs> I go there. This is, this is for all of us. And I'm there on, I go there in the week. And you know who I've never seen there? I've never seen David at the gym. Now, if I concluded from never seeing David at the gym at my gym, that I am more fit than David, that would be a ludicrous thing to, to think because David runs like 100 miles in his free time. Right? When you are in motion together, when you are in movement together, when you are on a journey together, it is humbling, it is supportive, it is, well, it's deeply participatory language that we are doing this together. So Christian community, it is the practice of moving towards something, striving towards something, never having reached it, never having arrived, not having perfected, but being on the journey together. That's humble language. That's pilgrim language. That's athlete language. That's healing language. And then the second part of this definition is towards Jesus. We are moving together towards Jesus. Jesus. Paul says this right before this moment in Philippians 3. In verse 7 and 9, Paul says this, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the value of knowing, experiencing Jesus. 
I've lost everything for him. But what I lost, I think of as trash so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Christian community is about moving together towards Jesus. And it's not simply about knowing more about Jesus together. That's actually kind of a bad philosophy to have, that this thing is defined by knowing more, because Jesus says that faith is defined by loving like Jesus. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus tells us that a new command I give to you, that if you want to be my disciples, you want to look like my disciples, then you will love the way that you have been loved. So then the movement towards Jesus is the movement of loving like Jesus loves, being transformed into the image of Christ, to look like Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to love like Jesus. So the Christian community is the practice of moving together towards Jesus, towards loving like Jesus, towards looking like Jesus. And the thing about that that's fascinating is that the expectations are kind of high. Love like Jesus. What is the example, the image, the representation of the love of Christ that we get? It's the cross. It's a love that dies for enemies. It's a love that reconciles enemies into friends. It's a love that gives itself for the other. So it is a radical image of what love can be, but it is also love. And love that transforms enemies into friends is a radically inclusive kind of love. It's a radically disruptive kind of love. It's a love that is so challenging and so disorienting to the ways that we often think. So it is about moving together towards Jesus, towards being like Jesus, towards embodying the way of Jesus. And then finally in this definition, it is about moving towards Jesus together. The practice of Christian community is about moving towards Jesus together. Cannot do this work alone cannot do this work alone. So it's about moving together towards the way of Jesus. But if we think about it within this spectrum, I think it has the power to disrupt the way that we normally do Christian community or the way that we normally think about Christian community because it is about being more like Jesus together. It's about loving more like Jesus together. That's the work that Christian community is trying to do. It's not simply knowing more about Jesus, so that's a good thing to do. It's good to do Bible studies. Trust me, I love education. It's good to know more. So that's an important part of the process. But I think sometimes we miss in our practice of community that it is about doing the way of Jesus and living the way of Jesus and learning the way of Jesus in our very selves. And so community becomes about looking like Jesus together. When it becomes wrapped in this kind of new way of thinking, that it's about being like Jesus together, I think it also has the power to change some of the words that we bring to the practice of community. I was thinking about what are words that we often use when talking about Christian community, and I was thinking about the phrase accountability. Has anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand. Have you ever had an accountability partner in the church? It's really good, really, really helpful. I think sometimes in a way of thinking about community, accountability partners become focused on how we fail at doing the way of Jesus. Right? So often that's the way that the orientation of, account of accountability partners go. But I think in this different way of thinking about us being working together to pursue the way of Jesus, an accountability partner is not about where you fail. It is about seeing you as you can become in the way of Jesus, which is a radically different way of supporting one another. 
It's a radically different way of supporting. I often say this to Heather, that she has all these friends who have accomplished kind of amazing things. And she, she would often say, she's like, I have all these amazing friends, but Heather's like the best encourager in the world. And at some point, you have to be like, Heather, I think you might be the common denominator here that you see in people what they can become, and you tell them that. So then they write books, and they get PhDs, and they go on amazing adventures. What if that's what it meant to be in community with somebody? That you get to see what someone can become, that you see the potential in someone in the way of Jesus, and you speak that over them. You speak what love can do over someone because you are committed to this way of Jesus, this high expectation, high inclusivity way with them. It transforms, I think, those kinds of words like accountability. It creates in us stability. We talked about stability last week with Michael O'Brien. When you have people who are committed to the way of Jesus with high expectations but high inclusivity, what it does is it creates safe spaces to be a Christian. Again, because accountability is not necessarily about how you have failed, but about how you can become more like Jesus, and it becomes a much easier place to fail. Again, if I think about like using fitness imagery, because Paul likes to use that, if you're at the gym and you get hurt using a piece of equipment, how should your friends respond to you? Should they kick you out of the gym? No. They should partner with you in finding a new way to heal and grow and become stronger. They might actually learn a lesson from that experience about how to lift and how your form is and all of those kinds of things get to change because, again, we are moving together in the way of Jesus. We're striving for something that has not been perfected. We're running the race that Christ has set out for us. So it creates safe, hospitable, welcoming places in which we get to do the way of Jesus. And as it creates accountability and stability, that creates resilience. Social science tells us that one of the best ways to be a resilient kinds of people is to have committed friends. If you have people who are safe, people who want to follow Jesus together, people who believe that you can become something more in the way of Jesus, they see the healing, they see the wholeness, they see the growth that is possible in this journey, and they speak that over you, man, that creates resilience. You can take more injuries that way. You can take more of what the world throws at you that way. Not that it's wrong to be injured, but you can become a more resilient person because of the people around you. So, Missio, Christian community, it is the practice of moving towards Jesus together. It is that convergence of high expectations and high inclusivity that is disruptive and different and in many ways disorienting to the kinds of communities that we have practiced before. But it is what creates places of accountability that are encouraging and transformative. It's what creates spaces of stability and safety. And I think it's what helps us become a more resilient Jesus people. And so what if we practice this kind of community together? What might be, ha- what might be possible in our own spiritual lives, our own journeys, our own growth like into Christ-likeness, what might be possible if we practice this kind of community? That saw what we could become, that created safe spaces to become it. I mean, I think we might become more loving people. I think we might look more like Jesus in that kind of space. 
So as we close, Missy, I just want to ask you three reflective questions to send us into our time of worship about this kind of community, about this kind of practice. As you hold that, like, what if? Like, what if we could become this kind of community? I think we can. Again, because it's safe and it's a place that is willing to change and to experiment in. So let me ask you these three questions. As you think about community today, what are your expectations of community? Expectations are the most difficult, as we've seen, they're the most difficult thing to navigate in a relationship, they're the most difficult thing to navigate in community. So what are the expectations that you bring to community right now and right here? Where do they come from? What are they shaped by? Do they look like the ones that we've talked about? And I guess the question is, do they look like Jesus? Do they look like loving like Jesus? Second, who are you moving towards Jesus with? This is the question of who are you doing community with? An easy way to do that at Missio is you can join a community group or a change group. If you don't have one, I'll be at the Connect booth. Let's talk about it. That's an easy place if you're looking for places to do community with people. But maybe you have a group of friends and you do community with. Great. Who are you moving towards Jesus with? Maybe you uh, just need to name some people today. Maybe that's what you need to do in this spot. And then finally, what could you do this week to practice this kind of Jesus-centered, Jesus-moving community? What's like one risk that you could take? that would maybe transition your community that's maybe felt a bit, I don't know, I just not this way. Like maybe there's a step you can take or a risk that you can take or a question that you can ask that might begin to shift community into this kind of way. Maybe leading in a practice that we've already done. A practice of lament or a practice of storytelling, a practice of resting and playing. Like all of those actually can be really powerful ways of recentering this and changing it. So, Mr. take those three questions. And as you imagine what community can be in the way of Jesus, bring that to this next moment of worship. Bring it to the table where we gather together and let God do something in you to transform and renew your image of community. Let's pray. Jesus, today as we talk about this practice, We just have an imagination change that is rooted and transformed and centered in you. Would we just begin to ask a new question about what our practice of community in this space and at, like our midweek groups and our Bible studies and at work, would we just have a, a, like a new way of asking a question about like what is possible in community when it is centered on you? when it's driven and motivated by the love of you, the work of you, the accomplishment of you, like what is possible in our space? God, would you begin to shift that in us, move that in us, transform it in us, and then fill us with your spirit to make it real. God, we need places where we can encounter you, grow into the likeness of you in safety. So help us create that. Not perfectly, but in the practice and movement. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.